Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and that little bit kinder to yourself because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. Welcome to this episode of the Motherkind podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you for pushing that little play button. I really appreciate you. I have a special episode for you this week. My guest is with psychotherapist Julia Samuel, MBE, and she asks some brilliant questions. What is it that enables some families to thrive when others fragment? What predicts a family breakdown? Why do our families drive us so mad? What makes a family functional or dysfunctional? And why is there no such thing as a perfect family? I think families are one of the most important, complex, infuriating, loving, joyful, confusing things in the world. I learned so much from this episode and I know that you will too. Can you do me a favour? If you love this podcast, hit subscribe. It matters more than you know. Also, please, please, please share this episode. Be that person in your family or friendship group or mum group that is sharing this much needed wisdom with others. Here's the episode with Julia. I hope you love it. Julia, it is such joy to be here with you again. And I absolutely adore the new book. I cannot wait to delve into all things family with you. Well, it's lovely to be with you, Zoe. And I use some of your wisdom in the book. So you are part of the book and acknowledged at the back for being so. So I'm completely delighted that we're able to talk about this book that you've contributed to. Oh, thank you. And when I did my end of the year review, that was a big part, actually. You asking me to share my thoughts on family, I really highlighted that as something that I wanted to celebrate for myself. So thank you for the opportunity. I mean, I do think the great gift of hosting podcasts, being a guest on a podcast, is that we have intimate conversations with people who start off as strangers, who then become friends or respected colleagues or people that you really like. I mean, I never would have met you without it. And I think in the same way as you're speaking to your audience, that they know you and they begin to know me through you. It is a real gift that we have this capacity to talk about what we believe in, what we mind about and share it with each other. And I think because it's genuine between you and me, people hear that. And that feels like a lovely, special thing. So thank you for inviting me. You shared just then about that desire to have real conversations. What was the desire to focus on family? Because I guess in your work, there's so many areas you could have focused on and written a book about. What was it about family in particular that you wanted to dive into? I mean, every person that has ever walked through my door as a therapist in the last kind of like 32, 33 years has spent big tracks of time talking about their family of origin or the family that they're making. And in my therapy, the same. I really believe that family is essential to our well-being, is the biggest influence on a child's outcome to their psychological, mental, physical health and their capacity to step into adulthood with protection, you know, with being resilient and robust. And so I don't think anything matters more than family. So it just was blindstormingly sitting in my face. I wanted to write about family and I wanted to discover more and meet more families and really hone down into what matters in families so that I would understand it for myself and through that the readers would understand it for themselves. The most simple in a way is also the most complex. So in the end, the thing that matters most is love. So love, being able to love to move in when you need to move in to be able to stand back, love in action, love in reflection, 
love in allowing conflict and love in generosity. You know, I think a lot of kind of misery and heartache in families is competition for not enough resources of love. Or people feel they have to perform to get their love. They have to be a particular way. Or they just are not predictably receiving love. So they constantly kind of on alert looking for love. So when love is predictable, generous, and open with all of the difficulties. So, I mean, the thing about loving is that where you love most, you also hate most and make your deepest mistakes. Love is by no means a soft skill. It's a really tough skill. But it's one that I think we can learn. So even if we didn't receive it as a child, we are born with this magical neuroplasticity that we can adapt and change. You know, that's what my last book was about, is that we're not set in stone. And it only takes, first of all, the awareness to recognize what we need more of or what we need to change and doing it in small steps that we can then shape ourselves into the person, parent, woman, child that we want to be. It's so poignant that that phrase that you just said, you know, where we love most, we also hurt most and we also hate most. And I think that is such a truism, isn't it? And I was thinking as you were speaking about what blocks from love. When I watched my little newborns, they just seemed to me to be pure love. And it's those events that happen, isn't it, where we harden our hearts and then we can't give love in the way we'd want to. And then that passes down generationally. Is that what you saw weaved into those stories? And I guess in your own life, because we're wired for love, right? But we have these boulders. Sometimes I think of them as rocks in the way. Completely. I mean, you've answered it in that, you know, love is a risky business. And so if we haven't received love in a predictable, reliable way that we can be confident of, where we give love and then are sensitive to what we receive back, we can shut down, we can push away, we can act out, we can do all the dances that we do to express our hurt, to express our anger, to show that we're misunderstood. And that's the sort of paradox, isn't it, is that what we need most when we're hurting is the love and connection to others. And sometimes we do all the behaviours that pretty much ensure that we don't get that. It's so true. And I see that in my own life, you know, the hardening around my heart to protect myself blocks me from the very thing that I want. Exactly. So it's the defences. In my book, there are eight different case studies, which are very different families from a family where a father and partner died by suicide to a five-generation Orthodox Jewish family, to a kind of white middle-class family where the 19-year-old daughter was going to university, you know, adoption of a gay couple. And the thing that is universal between all of the eight case studies and their different backgrounds and ways of being is we learn from our parents and our grandparents and even our great-grandparents how to be in relationship, how to communicate in relationship, how to express our needs in relationship, and how to deal with difficulty in relationship with ourselves and the world. And one of the big kind of lessons from my book is I invite people to reflect on their patterns and their family patterns and to look up to the generation before and even the generation before that, because the defenses and behaviors that developed in the generations before, until someone's prepared to feel the pain, to express the pain, the defenses are what causes harm. And those defenses get passed down from generation to generation until someone is prepared to feel the pain. So it may be that there was a suicide in your grandfather's family. And the way that family dealt with suicide was not talking about it. It could be that they 
self-medicated with alcohol and drugs. It could be they self-medicated with busyness and making money. It could be all sorts of things. But that defense mechanism to deal with a hugely traumatic, complex death is then visited on the generation below and the generation below. You know, the message from the sort of family systemic therapists and research is it goes on down until someone's prepared to feel the pain. And so what I'm encouraging the readers is to look at themselves and explore what their patterns are and name them. And are they still working for them or do they need updating? And what support do they need in order to manage that? Because change requires both our awareness, our decision, but also the love and connection to others that you can't do it alone. This idea is not new to me. No, I'm really (laughs) passionate about this, but I still find it just absolutely mind-blowing. The pain gets passed down generations until someone is willing to feel it. You know, it's got me thinking about how individualistic our society and our approach to mental health has become. And you don't have to be careful of my boundaries. I don't want to say too much about my family, but within my family unit, there was definitely someone who felt it more than anyone else, but was sort of seen as a... Weak. Yeah. And now I'm like, that person was the truth teller. That person was feeling everything that all the rest of us were suppressing. That person was feeling it. And I'm wondering, you know, I was reading a study the other day about the rise of depression and anxiety in young people. With what you've just said in that context, how do we need to look at that differently for young people that might be struggling? How do we need to shift that so that we look at them within the context of a family? Because that's really hard to do, really hard to do. Like I can see how in my family, the problems that one member was having, if been even suggested that that could be part of a bigger picture, I think that would have been rejected as an idea. And yet now looking back, I can see that was probably what was going on. Completely. I mean, you make a really good point is that in a family system, everybody operates within the system. I talk about in the book that no family is always functional. We move on a spectrum of function and dysfunction depending on what's happening to us. And often it's big moments of change, like having a baby or leaving home or losing your job or the grandmother dying or a pandemic (laughs) hitting your family that creates the stresses that the pre-existing fault lines emerge. And so within that family system, it seeks homeostasis. It seeks regulation because that's what we're always looking for is some kind of balance but in a moment of stress different people will deal with that stress differently so in your family one person would say I'm fine I'm fine I'm absolutely fine you know with the kind of AA definition of fine fucked up insecure neurotic and emotional not fine at all and then there may be someone who as you say is the truth teller who what we would say, is acting out. So they may have an eating disorder. They may be crying all the time. They may not be part of the family and go off with their friends or become a goth or, I'm not saying a goth is acting out, but, you know, they will have a different behavior to the familiar behavior in the family. And so what's useful is rather than pointing at someone as they're being abnormal or they're being difficult, is recognizing that this represents a distress in the whole family system. And again, asking questions. What is going on? What isn't being said? What isn't being named? What isn't being allowed? So in every family, there are rules and obligations and things that are allowed and things that are not allowed. And yours may have been that we always have to be okay. We always have to put on a show. In another family, it might be to do with performance, that you have to kind of be really good or perfect. In another family, it might be that everyone's drunk. If you're sober, you're the weird one. And I'm sure we'll get to this, but I wrote sort of 12 touchstones for well-being. And one of them was to allow difference, is that you can feel like the weird one in the family if you're academic or you're not sporty or you're sporty if the prevailing what is allowed in your family is a particular way and you're different to that. And I think the more we can allow difference, 
but also be curious when something is happening in a family, then we have much more insight into how to meet it appropriately with love and support people through it rather than shut down and become pulled apart by it. So what happens when families don't connect and communicate and allow the different ways of suffering to be expressed is they build walls against each other and then people feel very isolated and that has then its own compounding effect on your mental health. I love how you said what's not being said and you you say this so beautifully in the book that one of your invitations for people is to look at those secrets and the unsaid things because that is often how these behaviours get passed down and that's absolutely my story. That is my story and I was lucky that my maternal grandmother was a bit of a truth teller because she told me lots of truths that I wouldn't have found out otherwise. But also, I really want to make the point, this isn't someone being intentionally bad or doing stuff to cause harm. If these are traumatic events or very, very difficult events, remember, trauma doesn't have a narrative. Trauma trumps rational thought. Trauma has no sense of time. So trauma lives on in your body on red alert, waiting to be triggered. And so the thing people do is to shut and build defences to block the trauma because it's so distressing and terrifying. I think trauma does get watered down between generations, but trauma isn't spoken (laughs) because people don't have words for it. And so for someone like me, you know, my grandfathers, both my grandfathers on both sides of my family fought in the First World War and my father fought in the Second World War. My mum was a land girl. So they were of the generation who were brought up through massive traumatic events, had massive bereavements. There was no way they had any possibility of talking about how they felt or telling their story or grieving openly There was no model of it. And their only requirement was to survive. Because when you're traumatized, our human system has a negative bias. It doesn't give a shit what you're feeling or how traumatized you are. All you have to do is survive and multiply. And my parents did that with knobs on. They had five kids. (laughs) So they, they succeeded from a kind of Darwinian perspective. But they paid a price from a psychological, although I don't think they would have even agreed with me they would say they were fine but looking back at them you know they're both dead now I would say there was a lot that they couldn't enjoy because they had to block so much off what was the impact on you I mean it was the perfect environment for mental therapists no (laughs) because I was more interested always of what was going on inside than what was being said on the outside even when there were big things happening like my grandmother died, my only surviving grandparent. I don't remember ever having a conversation about it, ever. We never talked about things that mattered. We talked about things that were jolly. You know, our family, the rules were kind of be okay, be funny, get on. And, you know, that has given me great skills that I am really grateful for. I'm not funny, but I'm very good at getting on with people. And I learned that from my mum and dad. And that was a skill they must have inherited probably from their parents. So there were things I got which served me incredibly well, but none of them was talking about how you feel, what was difficult or suffering. And that would be true of most of that generation. So, I mean, I, you know, I really love my mum and dad in death as well as when they were alive. And I think it's true of every parent in every land that they're doing the best they can given who they are, given the context they were born in, given what they know and the challenges they face. And I think that's a good place to start with any parent listening is do not beat yourself up. You are really doing the best you can. And please take on the kind of Winnicott term of good enough, being a good enough parent. And that will mean you make massive mistakes like I did. And like my children are doing now with their kids, probably less than I did. Um, because they know more and they were better parents than I was. And maybe they just improved generation to generation, who knows. But I think we always make mistakes as parents. I think what you're talking to is so important because 
you know, clearly a strong message from your understanding of this family and generational cycling is to look up, is to figure out those beliefs and what was passed down. I think the other side of it, which is probably just as important, is to do that with compassionate eyes. This was so fundamental for me when I felt I was young you know Julia when I first had my breakdown awakening call it awakening I was 22 and I went into 12 step as you know and you know I started to look back and I I was getting angry really angry how dare they how could they they knew nothing what were they doing what were they thinking that thing what were they thinking exactly particularly a lot of the secrets began to unearth and I realized that the true impact of it on me actually which was pretty big at the time but then about a year later you know I started to look into generational trauma I did a genogram and I actually yeah it's in in your book as well and Mm. that's one of the best things I've ever done the compassion that it unlocked for everyone up and down the generations I just thought they couldn't do it any other way they had no chance and then I started to think wow in this context my parents were incredible just as you were describing with your parents, like, wow, like my mom was battling with what I know she was now battling with. And she still managed to get us to school. You know, she was an incredible parent. She really and loved you. She adored us. She just didn't love herself. Yes. So, yeah, it's so important, I think, to always hold those two together, isn't it? The importance of looking up, looking around in the context, but doing it with as much love and compassion and understanding as we can access. I completely agree. And the outcome of that is recognising that any idea of perfection or I don't even really like being your best self because I think it's so sort of performative. It's a messy business. Loving is messy and risky. Having kids is messy, gorgeous, joyous, fills you with wonder and exhausting, relentless, the alwaysness of it, the shitty nappies, the sleepless nights, you know, nothing is purely one thing or another. And to kind of accommodate that in our sense of self, as ourself, as a mother, as a woman, as a a partner, as a friend, is more forgiving. And that is what self-compassion does, is that you kind of turn to yourself with forgiveness as well as love, as you would a friend. Yeah. Is there anything that you still struggle to forgive yourself for? Or do you live in that place of compassion most of the time? No, I don't. don't. There are definite things as a parent that I look back on and I certainly say to myself, what were you thinking? I clearly wasn't thinking. But more for me, it was what I didn't notice. I was incredibly busy. I was a very young mother. I'm now saying I'm justifying myself, you know, I'm giving myself the context of, you know, I was 21 when I had my first child, 29 when I had my fourth child. So I had a lot of children and I was working full time because I wanted to work because I was young. And so there were things that I didn't notice. And it wasn't really until I got into therapy when I was about 28 and became a therapist, started training as a therapist at 31, which is still young. Well, 30, I started training as a therapist when I was 30, that I began to see the things that I hadn't known. And really, I couldn't have known them until I'd started training because it wasn't so, there was very little out there. There was a couple of books. Miriam Stoppard was a good mentor and role model. I didn't know her, but her book work was. But, you know, and in some ways it's gone too far the other way now. There's so much and there's so much self-criticism and so much sort of seeking of perfectionism or a hierarchy of, you know, your child doing better than the other. And, you know, in 1970, parenting was not, it wasn't a, a, is it an adverb? My grandma, I was taught at school, was rubbish. But whatever the word is, and someone can tell you when they listen, parenting didn't start as an adverb until the mid-1970s. It wasn't a thing. You know, the main thing was to keep them alive, fed, roof over their head, get to school. It's a good thing and a bad thing, isn't it? It's a great thing how much we know now about the profound responsibility of it, actually. And as you said right at the top, parenting and the family is the number one determinant of, you know, child's outcome. Yeah. So that's massive responsibility, but it's also holding that, the other side of it as well, which is holding it with imperfection and we're going to mess it up. And genetics, you know, that there's a cocktail. So, in one of the stories was the Holocaust family. 
this amazing 92-year-old woman who's an ultra-Orthodox Jew who survived Auschwitz and the death march and came to this country age 16 and doesn't really have trauma. And she's a bright-eyed, sparkly 93-year-old. And when I talked to a neuropsychologist about that, part of what enabled her to be resilient and to be so loving and not bitter was that she had a very secure, loving family in Hungary, all of whom were murdered, by the way. She went into Auschwitz at 14, so she'd had 14 good years that that was in her giving her secure attachment. And she had her genetic predisposition. So she was a bright-eyed, sparkly 14-year-old. And probably that bright-eyed, sparkly 14-year-old, the genetics of that, meant that Mengele pushed her to the right, not to the left, meant that she was given a potato now and again, a piece of cake later. And those little gifts from people was what enabled her to survive and live. Plus the friendship and the networks of people in the camp. And then when once she came to England, she fell in love and she had her family. And that was all she's ever wanted. She said, if I had had children at Auschwitz and seen my children die, I wouldn't have wanted to live. I would have had no desire to live. But always, every day, I had hope. I wanted to see the end. I wanted to see it through. And that hope enabled her to survive. And then the meaning she made of her incredibly traumatic, brutalizing experience was, and she says this to her children and her grandchildren and her great-grandchildren, I lived so that I could have you. And that's the meaning she make of it. And other people who survived Auschwitz didn't make meaning of it in the same way they had survivor's guilt. And many of them, there's that expression, they survived Auschwitz but died in Auschwitz, that they lived after Auschwitz, but all of them died there because they didn't have that heart, that love and the meaning that she made of it. We're just going to take a short break from the episode and I'm really excited because my sponsor this week is a product I use every day. So I'd heard of Athletic Greens on my friend Rongan Chatterjee's podcast and I thought about it. It was only when I saw my husband Guy had stuck taking it and I noticed a massive difference in his energy levels and the quality of his sleep. He's quite a bad sleeper and he was sleeping way, way, way better. So I thought I need to get me some of this. So I have been taking Athletic Greens every day since October and my energy levels have never been higher. Well, since having the girls. I take it first thing in the morning, right after I've made the girls porridge. It's super simple. It actually tastes quite nice. So with one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole sourced superfoods, easy for me to say, probiotics and adaptogens. It takes minutes to mix it up. So with very little time in our busy, busy, busy lives, taking my Athletic Greens is one thing I can do every single day to take care of myself. Every time I have it, I feel like I'm showing myself through my actions that I deserve to feel good and I'm worth looking after. It helps me remember my mantra. I can only be the mother I want to be when I look after myself too. So to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you one free year's supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash motherkind. Very important. That's athleticgreens.com slash motherkind to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Back to today's episode. How important is it to put a narrative and a meaning on some of our harder family stories? I think it has to be genuine. There's probably about 50 PhDs to that question. But my basic answer is, first of all, the story that we tell ourselves is the person we become. So if we're telling ourselves incredibly negative, critical, blaming stories, then that is how we feel and that is how we behave and that's how we'll be met by the world. That then creates its own subsystem of 
getting what you think is going to happen. But, you know, the research also shows very clearly that trauma doesn't have the same impact on everybody. You know, 10% of people who have trauma, who have a traumatic experience, have PTSD. So, I mean, Auschwitz was so long that everyone would have had trauma from that. But, you know, a single event trauma, like being in a train crash or a car crash, a lot of people will naturally adapt from that, not have PTSD, but 10% will have PTSD and more women than men have PTSD. And we don't fully know why. But certainly those that recover from traumatic events, the meaning they make of it is a big part of their recovery. And that's when they get post-traumatic growth, that idea that it never takes away the devastation of the experience or the loss, but that it expands and you grow through that devastation, that your perception of yourself, your perception of what matters in the world, your perception of your reason for living changes and that that is experienced as growth. I love that. And I loved learning about post-traumatic growth. I think it's an incredible, quite emerging actually field, isn't it? The guy I went to the lectures from is called Stephen Joseph. And he was at, I think it's Leeds University. And I went to his lectures in the early 2000s, late 1990s. And he wrote about the uh, Marchioness disaster. And, you know, his book is called What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Stronger. So it's worth reading. When we think about families, I guess it's easy to think about healthy families, as we've touched on, and dysfunctional families. Do you believe in that sort of segregation? Talk to that. How does someone know if they're in a dysfunctional family and what to do about that? As I said before, I think all of us, depending on what's happening and what's happening within us, as well as externally, move in and out of functioning and dysfunctioning. You know, so if I got a cancer diagnosis tomorrow, my capacity to be generous and generative when I'm feeling scared and under threat will be less. And I'll use my basic coping mechanisms, which for me is to shut down. (laughs) Even now, is first of all to shut down. And then I have to kind of talk myself down and open up. So all of us move in and out and we're affected by each other because feelings and emotions are A, not logical and B, contagious. So the family system is also the system that holds the emotional network of a family. But there are certainly at the far end of the spectrum, dysfunctional families. And I would say, and people please argue with me, I would say the definition of a dysfunctional family is where there are more negative interactions than positive, where there isn't goodwill, where the intention for each other is not for the betterment of the family, where there is really a bad communication. You know, it's either you're all right or you're all wrong and you are kind of in or you're out. And there is this awful sort of insecurity about love and reward, that thing of power of variable reward, where you're kind of longing to be seen and to be loved and you work hard for it and you're spat out and very occasionally you get it and so it keeps you hooked. So all of those types of behaviours happen in dysfunctional families. But I think the main one is that there are many more negative interactions than positive. You know, if someone's listening to this podcast, it's probably because they are interested in, you know, their own healing and doing it differently for their family and the next generations. How does someone know whether to continue to try and operate within that unit perhaps if, as you described, it is dysfunctional or whether it's time to draw a boundary and think, you know, for my own sanity, emotional health, mental health, I need to have some really strong boundaries here around contact or, you know, even cutting contact. How does someone begin to navigate that? Because I don't think that's talked about enough, is it? You know, it'd be impossible for me to say, you know, there isn't like a five-step plan that, you know, if you get five points out of these five, you're dysfunctional, cut them off. But, you know, in the story, there was Archie Craig and he had a brain tumour diagnosis of cancer. And he really loved his mum and dad, but he was brought up in a very dysfunctional family. And 
his mother's response to his fourth diagnosis of cancer, which he is going to die from, was to say, well, he's always been a difficult child. (laughs) And at that point, he knew that he couldn't deal with her and her inability to respond to his needs and look after himself, the new relationship he was in, and be a dad to his two children. So he cut off both of his parents, which was the right decision, but it was a painful decision because, you know, we all still have a kind of love for our parents, even if they are by no means the parents that we want them to be. That's sort of wired in us. And so a lot of our sessions, he talked about his mum and the fact that he missed her and that he was furious with her. You know, so we can never get away from our families. They are wired in us genetically. They are wired in us in our memories. They are part of us. They influence us. They shape us. They inform us. With children, they predict our outcomes. So it's a very big step to completely shut down. I think often creating good boundaries, maybe time boundaries, maybe what you talk about boundaries, so that you can manage your emotions, because it's, you know, and like one of the things that often families do is they'll go and have lunch with their mum and dad, because they can do lunch, because it's around the table, you go in, you have the conversation, you go out, but they couldn't spend the night with them because then maybe their mum or dad starts drinking and then they have these discursive conversations and then there's a row and then all the laundry list of all the stuff that they're angry and have never dealt with comes out. So there are different ways of managing it. And sometimes you have to make the very painful decision to have no contact. Or you make the painful decision not to have contact for a few years while you sort yourself out. But it is never simple and it is never pain-free such a brave decision isn't it because essentially what that decision is saying is I'm going to honor my need for healing over trying to ever change you because you can never change them I mean that is just a that is never in your gift so you know like in the AA terms that idea of changing your parents you have to let God and let go I mean I say that but actually I'm very influenced by my children and they change me regularly And, you know, there was a case study of a book of Linford, who's 26, who was very much the leader in the family. You know, his grandmother, Patience, was very powerful, but he had the bright ideas that got the family from dysfunction to function. So I say you can't change them. I mean, the theoretical understanding is that we can't change other people. They have to want to change. But I would add to that, if you have a good enough relationship, and you have good communication, you can influence each other because there's enough goodwill and there's enough love. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. As you're speaking, I was thinking, this is about influence. And I've really noticed that the more that one person in a family, you know, might unpack some stuff, might go to therapy, might start doing it differently. It definitely rocks the boat for a while, doesn't it? When one person starts to play a different part in that system. And then I think it does have the opportunity for others to want to change like for me you know I started getting to recovery and healing and then six months later my mum joined me now I don't think that's a coincidence I changed my behavior and I think it gave her enough chink in that dynamic to then go and do it good for her what an amazing openness of her to let you influence her to change her she must have loved you a lot I mean I think that's amazing I don't know but that's what happened I went into recovery and then yeah six months later she did and I think if you're looking at the other end of the spectrum if you want to look at what are the definitions of healthy families healthy families have the capacity to adapt and change given the new circumstances they find themselves in so they are not brittle they are not locked They are not set in stone. They are changing, adaptive, open systems that incorporate and allow the distress of new things or the joy of new things. They grow with new sons-in-law or new grandchildren with, you know, because if any family in multi-generations, there's always something happening. You know, the grandparent may be starting to have arthritis 
their child may have their teenager leaving home. The teenagers are learning how to have sex, you know, or they're older and they're having their first kids. So families are always changing. And the ones that grow with the change, and a bit like my last book, is that pain is the agent of change and that life is change. And the things that you do to block change are the things that do you harm. And so a healthy family system names the change, incorporates the change, allows the discomfort of change or even the pain of it, but grows with it and adapts with it. What are some of the other things you talk about, these brilliant 12 touchstones? I love that word, touchstones. It's just so beautifully tender. What are the other touchstones for healthier families? So the 12 touchstones for family well-being. My caveat was that People may have different touchstones to me. That These are the ones that worked for me and that you all come from your own context so that they may have to shape them given what that context is. But the first one, of course, was self-compassion, that that is a kind of primary one that you need to be able to turn to yourself with compassion because if you don't, then that sets off a whole train of behaviours and ways of being that kind of blocks the other ones good open communication and different ways of having communication. There's, a, I did a whole kind of spiel on communication. And I think one of the ones that will surprise people was to be able to fight productively. So, you know, like I said before, you have fights and conflict and difficulty in families. That is inevitable. You know, where you love most, you hate most. And so it's learning how to fight where you have this process of rupture, where you disagree and repair. So that it is never about the fighting, it's how you deal with the fight, that it's not just blocked and put away and then becomes part of the laundry list that you attack someone with, but it's also how you fight. You don't use words of weapons of mass destruction, you still respect the person, you don't denigrate the person, you talk about the behaviour and how you feel, not that they're always bastards all the time. And that when the time is right, because you can still be boiling from the fight, so you can't repair while you're still boiling. But when you've calmed down, you come together and repair and talk about what was really going on. It's not the dustbins. What is it? Is it I'm pissed off with you because you've been away for like two weeks? And of course, you can say you're exhausted because you've been working, but I'm stuck at home with the kids and I'm pissed off and I don't feel I'm allowed to be pissed off because you're bringing home the money. You know, whatever it is that gets played out with the bins, but having a sort of compassionate, open, good conversation about what the fight was really about, you often feel closer and love the person more, having hated them so much when you've really properly made up. You kind of go, oh, and you feel shiny, and it kind of reinvigorates the relationship. And so that's a powerful one. I think having rituals is a powerful one. Making time to have fun is important. Power dynamics in families you know, all of them have a part to play. And none of these are rules. No one is going to have the perfect day every day, like forgive yourself for the bad day. One of the communication aspects was that you'd have five more positive interactions than negative. And that isn't that you have a kind of to-do list. I've done five today. But if you kind of feel that your daughter or your son is really quite distressed and you don't know what's going on, kind of you can use it as a lens like, have I been much shorter than normal? Did I tick her off for forgetting her? How was I? How have I been? Have I been more negative than positive? And that might be a good way to see what's going on. Yeah, because our brains, unfortunately, are wired to look at the negative, which is just so annoying and unhelpful, but that is what we've got. So I think it's really powerful to think about that intentionally, because I've really learned, unless I intentionally think about the positive interactions and remembering to thank Guy for taking out the bins, which I must do later. <laughs> <laughs> well done. <laughs> One of the things he feels terribly taken advantage of, if I forget to say, thanks for the bins. But it's becoming intentional about making those moments positive, isn't it? And remembering to notice the good stuff as well. And I think it's... Acknowledgement. It's so easy not to do that. It is so easy, isn't it? I mean, those little moments of connection of, you know, today is random acts of kindness day. And, you know, the thing is to be nice to strangers. But actually, I think I'm in a 42-year marriage, which is a bloody miracle on the one hand. 
And on the other hand, I think a lot of it is, li- is little random acts of kindness, little sweetnesses. I mean, neither of our old are acts of kindness like helping each other find our glasses <laughs> because we can't find them. Whereas, you know, 30 years ago, it might have been going out for dinner, which I really don't want to do now. But, you know, it changes, but it is little things or that you remember little sweet things help keep the relationship alive. Your next book be on marriage. Can it be on marriage? That's what my publisher wants it to be on, is to be on love, yeah. Ooh. But we'll see. I mean, I, I'm not ready. I've written three books in like four years or something. So I'm going to have a bit of a gap. Let's get this one off the ground, shall we? Well, this one is just incredible. I took so much from it. I cannot wait for people to read the wisdom. And you just say things, you know, I always say this to you, but the way that you write and the way that you speak and who you are, you just tackle these really big, heavy subjects, but with such a compassion and an accessibility and I love the stories. I think stories are how we connect, right? That's how we used to connect around the campfire. And it was all through stories. And I, I really feel through your work, just telling the stories of different families in this book. Because I saw myself in each of them. I love hearing what you say, particularly as I left school at 16. So I can never really believe I've written books. But also the storytelling is that these are real people. You know, I'm so grateful for them for giving me permission to write about them. But I do profoundly believe that the most personal is the most universal and that we learn most about ourselves by reading stories or hearing stories from others. And so anyone listening who does buy this book, I will be hugely grateful. But also, I do think there is enormous power and learning from other people's honesty and mistakes and fault lines and clashes that you see yourself in. And then you have a little light bulb moment and that can literally change not just your day, but it can change your whole trajectory. You know, having one understanding that you read from somebody else's story. I mean, I have emails from people saying that and other people probably <laughs> think it's rubbish. So I mean, saying everyone would feel that, but I, That's what I hope is that, you know, that thing of if someone just takes one thing that will be a light bulb moment for them of self-understanding, self-compassion that will enable them to love easier, parent with less guilt and feel calmer. I think that would be an amazing gift. You know, I was thinking as you were speaking, sometimes I can only take one thing. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I could take from what you said today, I could take sort of 20 things and journal pages and pages and pages and pages on it. But I think I'm just going to take one and explore that. And sometimes I think that's better for me to take one idea and explore it and then another one and then another one. Because I have this personality where I want to heal it all now, solve it all now. <laughs> and it doesn't work that way. No, I mean you know, how we learn and how we integrate is slow. So that we have the thought, like, you know, five positive interactions. So you're like, right, you've logged that. Logging it and knowing it and shifting that into an integrated part of your behavior that becomes a habit takes a long time and takes a lot of insight. You know, you change your insight, you change your lens on the world and you change. But it is never just a flicking of a switch. It's falling in the hole, getting out, reminding yourself, be nice to yourself, dust yourself off, try again. Despite what Instagram would have us believe. Yeah. Some of it is just like, do this, your life will change. Do this, your life will change. I'm like, really? Really? Yeah. (laughs) I think that's one of the challenges with content today is everything has to be so bite-sized. And as you've so beautifully described... It is a process. It's such a process. And it always takes longer than you want. And it is more uncomfortable than you'd wish. It's true. I find hearing that really hopeful because I know that it's two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back. You're still making progress. Exactly. There's nothing wrong with me that it's 15 years now and every day I'm challenged with something. That just means I'm still growing. 
I think that's incredible, right? And also looking into your face, seeing how energizing that is, that hope, you know, hope is the alchemy that turns a life around, but having that hope in you is the flame that fires you and enables you to enjoy your days and enjoy your children and stay curious and stay connected. But you look very alive and very kind of yourself. Well, I think Bright-eyed, I, like Catty. Well, there's yeah. nothing that makes me more excited than, you know, the idea that we can just keep growing and changing. Like, how good is that? Imagine if it was the other way and you were just stuck with the hand that you were dealt. Like, whoa. I just think it's... That's incredible. despair. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you mentioned, you know, neuroplasticity. We've talked about integrating and doing it differently and the impact that we can have then on future generations. That sort of stuff just makes me feel giddy, to be honest with you, because it's anything's possible. It's exciting. It is. I always ask the same question at the end, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? I think it's the thing that we started out with is that love is strong medicine. It is our superpower born to love and connect. And it's a difficult skill, not a soft skill. So love yourself, let yourself off the hook. I think part of loving, which I think we forget, is to receive love, be open to receiving love. And when we receive it, then we reciprocate. So be as open to receiving love as giving love. Yeah. Beautiful. And those words are so powerful. It's a difficult skill, not a soft skill. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. It's been such a joy and an honour. I've loved every minute. I could talk to you for hours, Zoe. And I hope your listeners and your followers just take one thing. That would be really lovely. That would be a gift to me. And thank you for inviting me on your amazing podcast that is changing the world. Listen by listen. Thank you, Julia. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Also, just a reminder about the Family Reset Plan. It's my latest offering to parents. I think that we are living in probably the challenge of our lifetimes. Well, definitely so far. And as parents, we not only have to support ourselves, we also have to support our children. And that is a lot. So the Family Reset Plan is myself and two brilliant psychologists and we give you step-by-step, simple, applicable ways that you can support yourself emotionally to feel stronger, calmer, and therefore to support your children in a different way. It's all grounded in psychology and neuroscience. It's just £25 currently. And if you work for the NHS, it is totally free for you. So check out the website, familyresetplan.co.uk. Take care. I'll see you next time.